How Black Lives Matter in Creating a Beloved Community. Encouraging words from Indiana Area Bishop Julius Trimble on episode number 32 of the United Methodist People podcast with Reverend Dr. Brad Miller. Two of my brothers and myself were arrested in California, essentially for driving while black, translated and looking suspicious, suspicious because we were in a neighborhood that was uh, exclusively Anglo. Welcome to the United Methodist People podcast with Reverend Dr. Brad Miller. Brad believes that strengthening the connection in the United Methodist Church is essential to accomplishing the mission of making disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. The United Methodist People podcast helps clergy and church leaders connect with key insights, hear inspiring stories, and learn from the people making a difference in the United Methodist Church through conversation and commentary. And now, here's Brad. It was the straw that broke the camel's back. So says Indiana Area Bishop Julius Trimble in our conversation today on the United Methodist People podcast. My name is Brad Miller. It's my privilege to speak with Bishop Trimble as he spoke about the events that happened on May 25th, where a man, a black man by the name of George Floyd, was killed at the hands of police officers in Minneapolis, which was, as he said, the straw that broke the camel's back and has led to great racial strife and great uh, rallies and marches and demonstrations around every state in the country and many places around the world. In our conversation today, the bishop speaks to us about how the matter of Black Lives Matter helps build the beloved community. He talks about his own experiences with police when he was driving while black. He had talked about what the Bible says about matters of peace and justice and racial harmony. And what are the next steps for local churches to take and pastors to take and how he challenges Anglo pastors and leaders to get involved and to step up. This is a great conversation. You're going to want to hear this conversation and take it to heart as we talk to Bishop Julius Trimble on episode 32 of the United Methodist People podcast. Let's get into that conversation right now. Reverend Dr. Brad Miller with you here on the United Methodist People podcast, where we are looking to provide an encouraging word to your life as we have conversations with Bishop Julius Trimble about matters going on in our world. We've been having lots of conversations about the COVID virus and and about uh, matters along that line, about the quarantine and so on, and how it impacts churches. But two weeks ago today, we're, t- we're recording this on Monday, June the 8th, uh, a, an event happened that has impacted all people as well. On that day, a, a gentleman by the name of George Floyd was, uh, uh, was killed by uh, some police officers in Minneapolis, uh, Minnesota, and uh, there was an issue where he was a uh, videotape was released where he was uh, a knee was put on his neck for eight plus minutes and the other police officers were standing by and let it happen. And that led to great unrest in our country racially and otherwise, at least it set off the powder, powder cake in many ways. And as we just want us to have a conversation, reflect about racism and justice and, and things along this line, Bishop. And Bishop, I just wondered if you did have a chance to see that really 
horrible videotape of that of that attack and that murder that took place. And then what was your kind of your gut reaction to seeing that if you did? Uh, yes, yes, I, I saw the videotape. I, I, I couldn't watch the whole videotape. I've seen pieces of it multiple times now. Uh, and I've seen similar videotapes, uh, not, not necessarily when a person expired, but similar situations. Uh, so it's, it's, it's shocking. It's shocking on one hand, it's not alarming uh, to me as much as it may be for maybe most Anglo-Americans, since I am an African-American male um, who's old enough to remember these things happening. And, and I, can, I can think back in the 1970s when two of my brothers and myself were arrested in California, essentially for driving while black, translated to looking suspicious, suspicious because we were in a neighborhood that was uh, exclusively Anglo. Hmm. It seems, I was going to ask you about that, if you had any personal experiences. It, it just seems to me, and you help me out here, because, you know, I'm a, I'm a white male and you're an African-American male. We're about the same age. But it seems to me just about every African-American or person of color has some sort of a story like that, or they know someone who does. Do you think that's a relatively fair statement about the story you told? I think it's a fair statement. Yeah, some years ago, it's been no, uh, 15 years ago, um, when I was pastoring a local church, I, I asked on one Sunday how many people in the congregation, either themselves or a family member, had had a negative experience with uh, being stopped by the police or, or other persons uh, of a different race because of their color. And most, not everybody, but it was about a 90% response. And so I translate that every person maybe have not, has not been necessarily arrested or stopped, but they know somebody who has. So my wife and I, we're parents of three young adult children, two, two boys or two men <laughs> and a woman. Um, and the boys are in their 30s. And uh, one of them has, uh, and one of them has not had the experience of being stopped um, and really feeling like his treatment was was not the same kind of treatment he thinks some of his other classmates might have received uh, who were not African-American. So it's not an uncommon experience. And, and, and having said that, Brad, I know some people quickly want to uh, stop listening, uh, but this is not an indictment against all white people or all police officers, many of us, for example, my family, we have, I have police officers in my family uh, who are active or retired police officers. Uh, but uh, I think by and large, many African-Americans uh, and particularly African-American males uh, and Latino males uh, have had some experience that was not always the most gracious and professional encounter Mm -hmm. with uh, all police officers. Well, that, I think it, you know, we want to be careful to not indict with a broad brush, you know, all police officers or all whites or all blacks or anything along that line. If we get, we're going to talk in a minute about theology and about the Bible and so on. But I, but I do want to stay with this topic just for a second, because when you're describing the experience of, of yourself and your peers and your church members and your, your children, that's not the common experience for most white folks. You know, it just isn't. So this is a time I think when white folks like myself can tune in and listen better. 
So what do you think are some of the things that white folks are not hearing from black folks or people of color that they might start to be hearing now? Well, one I think is that uh, conscious and unconscious bias is not a figment of our imagination. So when people say, well, I've never had this experience or I've never witnessed this, uh, I think we really have to be start from the standpoint that most people, when they tell their own stories, are telling the truth. So whether it's sexual violence against women, uh, or whether whether it's uh, uh, the disregard for people who are who are poor, or whether it's people of color who who speak of experience of oppression, or whether it's history, whether the way in which it has been taught or the way in which it has been it's been ignored, I think we really have to take take uh, serious the fact that conscious and unconscious bias actually exists. Um, and racism is not a figment of the imagination of people of color. Um, it, it is, it's often talked about its power and privilege and, and, and position used to oppress others that we think are maybe less uh, equal than they are. So when people say people are offended when they hear the terms white supremacy or racism and so forth because they think don't think of themselves as being bad people or evil people and i understand that but it's something that we really have to realize is really systemic it's ingrained in our culture and our, our society it's historic um, it doesn't mean that we can't transform it or it doesn't mean that all people are evil or are racist but th it does mean that th this is not an illusion this is not a fiction, fic, uh, a fiction of our imagination. So when people saw the George Floyd video, I think it was shocking uh, that, that, that we, this could actually actually happen. When it's reported, that was really, uh, I didn't know this, that was, that was really part of uh, acceptable police procedures to apprehend and to subdue a, a person uh, if they were suspected of some crime. Um, what we hear was that a suspected crime was the passing of a, of a fake $20 bill. Right, right. So and what wonder, a price to pay. How, yeah, what a price to pay. Mm -hmm. Well, so part of what I'm hearing you say and trying to listen carefully here is it's part of the opportunity here for, for white folks, white clergy, white church folks is to raise consciousness and to be much more aware about this as an issue. And, and apparently this is what has really happened in our country around the world because it doesn't take too much research to know that there have been abuses of black folks uh, by police and others for all, forever, really, but has been in the, you know, by police and so on. But this particular incident uh, led to demonstrations and then also a little bit of violence and looting, this type of thing uh, throughout the whole country, every major metropolitan area, Every state was impacted, several countries. What's different now? What happened here to raise the consciousness to make this so pervasive everywhere? What happened here? I think on one side, people were shocked by what they thought was uh, uh, the commission of a crime against a humanity, a, a man. And then there was, no, there was no response. In other words, the officer was not arrested. It was, really wasn't until there was this public outcry that the officer was arrested and charged with any crime at all. Um, uh, and so I think that was part of it. For, for others, uh, it was like the camel that 
that broke the, I mean, the straw that broke the camel's back in the sense that this was, George Floyd was one out of multiple incidents, not just of police officers, but but of black persons dying at the hands of white persons. Mm -hmm. Let me just read a couple of sentences from a letter released by the Council of Bishops sure. of the United Methodist Church today. The past few weeks have left many hurt, angry, and outraged as we have witnessed the deaths of unarmed black persons at the hands of police and racism. Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, and the countless others whose names are known only to mothers, fathers, sisters, brothers, and friends. So let me stop right there. Uh, I just mentioned three names in a, in a short span of a, a couple of weeks who died. You know, one while running, uh, one person who was in her own home and the police came into the wrong home uh, with a, a search warrant um, looking for drugs, and then George Floyd. So the, the, the last part of that sentence, there are many others whose names are only known to mothers, fathers, and sisters, and brothers who are grieving to this day uh, because of the injustice that they have experienced. And so that people... In, that injustice, I'm just saying that injustice is not just recent. That's been going on forever. So it's we have... Going on, it's been going on forever. And uh, I, I think it's a, it's a time where, where, where there's been there's been such widespread community shock. I think this is maybe the only time in history that we can record where every state in the union, every state in the United States has had a protest. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't it. know, they say, some say as many as a hundred countries are protesting um, the death of George Floyd and what it represents. Yes, yes. And then you mentioned there the statement from the Council of Bishops. And so we need to, deal with this, reflect with this in the church and, and clergy and lay folks, all we, because we are part of society as a whole. And of course, there's lots of issues we have in the church as well. But one of the things I heard George uh, Floyd term more than once, I've heard he was described as a martyr. And to me, a martyr means someone who died for the greater good or, you know, for a faith, faithful uh, influence, greater good. Uh, I guess to transition towards the church here, towards the Bible, what it says, uh, do you think George uh, Floyd is a, uh, is a martyr? And if so, how? And how can we start to use this seminal moment to influence the church? I think he's a martyr from the standpoint that if, if, if the message of God's call for reconciliation, God call for repentance and reconciliation uh, is magnified through the life and death of a person. That person can be a martyr. They may not have intended to be a martyr. Uh, I don't think Stephen intended to be a sure. martyr. Uh, so people don't necessarily have to intend to be a martyr to be a martyr. But if the message of repentance, reconciliation, um, and justice is amplified uh, as a result of a person dying, they can they can be a martyr. Here's for, here for, for in our particular faith tradition, United Methodist, Brad, I know, and I know you, you haven't preached on it, you'll probably preach on it soon again. As, as, as bishops of the church, we do only do ask people to remember our baptism. And we, every United Methodist, in their, reclaiming their baptismal vows, says we 
vow to resist evil, injustice, and oppression in whatever forms they present themselves. That's part of our baptismal vow, our membership vow. That's right. That's uh, right. And so this is not, it's not, we don't have to create um, an avenue for us to act our faith out. We just have to act our faith out in the avenue that has been presented to us as part of our society. Yes. So what do you think uh, that's using as a foundation, our own baptismal uh, re- affirmation, reaffirmation of faith? What is a, what kind of framework does the Bible give us to really speak against injustice, to really gain some real clout here? And what can we use here to start to influence our churches to get more and more involved? I think if we look at the witness of the, of the prophets, uh, uh, whether it's Amos or Isaiah, if we look at the witness, the teachings of Jesus, uh, his parables were not so much so people would be able to be better storytellers. I think he told the parables not so that the disciples would be better storytellers, but that they might be stronger witnesses. So, uh, for example, the Luke Luke ten Luke uh, chapter ten, the whole narrative about the Good Samaritan, I think, is a story that speaks to uh, uh, diversity and uh, and being anti-racist, if you will, and finding ourselves. Uh, uh, acting on behalf of the other, whoever the other might be. Mm-hmm. So we we have we've had a narrow definition of neighbor, and I know I know the Lord is working with me on this as well in terms of because I, I've I've often had a probably a too narrow definition of neighbor, um, and so uh, the Bible is full of whether when Amos says let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever flowing stream, or when Isaiah says that God is not looking for our, 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 our ritual, our religious ritual, but that if we are, if we are good to the poor, if we are, speak up on behalf of the oppressed, uh, if, or if Micah says, what, is, what does the Lord require of us but to do justice, not just to be a fan of justice. My, the prophet says not, not, not admire justice, but what? do justice yes to do love it. mercy and walk on mm-hmm. so to do just that's an active active uh, verb there that says that we're we're actually supposed to be living that out as followers of elohim mm-hmm. uh, seems of, to seems uh, me oftentimes we uh of jehovah clerk- jireh of god yes it seems to me that oftentimes these uh passages regarding justice are overlooked or not paid attention to by clergy and others because they're inconvenient. They're uncomfortable. Uh, there's lots of reasons for it. Recently, I think uh, the church can be guilty or, and some of our public officials are guilty of manipulating the Bible for their own purposes. I'd just like you to speak to ways how we can use, uh, speak to manipulation of the scriptures for political, personal gain, and try to be true, how can we in the church really use the core messages of the scriptures in order to speak justice into this broken world? I think, I think our scriptures can help us uh, be a plumb line that allows for us to have a high moral, conscious, and, and, and a much more ethical landscape, if you will. So uh, I think we don't have to, scripture doesn't have to be used, and I try to avoid using scripture to, to advance a political or partisan point of view. But on the other hand, 
not make it so otherworldly, Brad, mm-hmm. that uh, that we that we forget that people actually are hungry and need real food, or people actually are being oppressed and need uh, to have their uh, knee taken off of their necks. Mm-hmm. So I think people saw the George Floyd Floyd killing as 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 illustrative of what it means to have someone actually have their knee on your neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds, or as some would say for 400 years. So Mm -hmm. from slavery to Jim Crow. So that that phrase, I can't breathe has now become a a call, hasn't it? It's been a a call to remove the oppression. Uh, And it's a a powerful thing because I know it goes back. It reminds me a little bit of, uh, you know, of, uh, the situation several years ago in New York City, where I forget the name of the young man who was killed, something on the line of "I can't breathe," and reminds me a little he bit, said, of, yeah. yeah, a little bit of Jesus on the cross. Said, you know that, uh, yeah, and and that and that person was killed. His crime was selling cigarettes illegally. If, right. I, if I remember correctly, you go back and do the respect. Yeah, I think so it's, it's correct. It's interesting. Some of the some of the saying, you know, what results. In, in a death sentence, and, and that's part of the, the anger and the explosion, I think, is when people look at, well, what happened that really resulted in this being escalated to the point where a person loses their life? And, mm-hmm. you, and often, it's not, we are, uh, often it's not the case of armed robbery or anything, uh, or, but often a person is stopped with what happened in Minnesota before sure. when the guy was shot in his car with his girlfriend and baby in the back. Right. So these things uh, can, what is, can what often is, get out of hand. What is the value of life? What is the value of human life? And that kind of takes us to the key phrase we hear a lot right now, and that is Black Lives Matter. What does that phrase mean to you, Bishop? Well, I think it's a, it's a truth statement that uh, made uh, Colin Kaepernick unpopular in NFL right. for circles, but when you think about it, it's possible that a Colin Kaepernick or persons who were crying, who began to cry after Trayvon Martin was killed in Florida, not by a police officer, but a private citizen who, who acted as a police officer, uh, or you go on down the line and name one name after another, uh, the question becomes, are lives equally valued in, in our society? So some people were offended by Black Lives Matter, but I look at it like this. If my house is on fire, I call the fire department. I want them to come to my house right away. It doesn't mean that I'm opposed to the fire department putting out other fires. I need them to come to my house, Brad, right away because my house is on fire. If they don't come to my house, my children and my spouse will die. So I use that. That may be a bit elementary, but that's exactly what it means, Black Lives Matter. It means that we are literally witnessing in history, in real time, certain lives seem to be valued more than other lives. So then if you and I have children of the same age and they're male, my, my sons have um, a, a 40% greater likelihood of dying at the hands of police or by a person of another race. They also have a higher percent, I will just say, they had this a higher percent dying of violence by someone from their own race. 
Sure. Sure. So Black Black Lives Matter is a fact that we it's an affirmation of uh, of of live Black Lives Matter, and it and it, it seems uh, it appears that some lives don't matter as much as other lives. Well, and then I think one of the interesting aspects of this, Bishop, is that it is so obvious and evidence that great energy generated by the anger that comes from being disregarded has emerged. But because that's mm-hmm. the demonstrations and it led, it led to demonstrations in every major city. Also, some violence that came out of that, which was tragic and saluting, which was uh, a terrible thing. But what we saw is people of all races all ages, families, people coming together who are just royally ticked off about this and want to speak into it. And so there is a possibility of some transition here. So I just think there's that can, comes, out, comes out of that anger that you're talking about. I agree. There's, there's more uh, uh, people of other races who are protesting than ever before, I think, in history. Uh, so, uh, and it's because people are uh, appalled they think this is not the best of who America is. This is not the best reflection of who we are. Uh, and they want better leadership from, from whether it's from the White House to our own houses, mm-hmm. that we need to demonstrate better leadership uh, mm-hmm. and not cast stones on one without picking up the cross, of our own cross sure. that we all have to bear. Well, speaking of our own house, we are uh, clergy in the United Methodist Church. And we are speaking to clergy and lay folks who are involved with our church and other folks who look for leadership. What kind of things do we need to see happen in our own house, our United Methodist churches? What are some practical steps we can take? What are some things we can take to break the bonds of racism, which are within our own churches, let's be honest, within our own churches as well. We have segregation in our churches, many of them. We have got a lot of work to do. What do you think are some next steps we can take to uh, work through the churches here to speak to this issue? I think we need to uh, at least agree to do several things. One, pray together. We did some of that yesterday uh, in the Indiana conference, having a time of prayer together because God uh, and seek the heart of God and seek, ask God to break our own hearts about the things that we have and have not done. That's part of our, 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 membership vows as well in our communion ritual when we do our prayer of confession. There's something we've not loved our neighbor in the ways in which we ought to. I think we need to maybe read up our, read more about our history. We need to listen to the stories of people who are different than we are, and particularly African-Americans who've been part of the United Methodist Church from its inception, the Methodist movement, the Wesleyan movement uh, from its inception. We need to engage in conversations guided conversations that include children and youth and adults in our Sunday school classes and in our uh, book uh, studies. And we also need to make a commitment to uh, preach prophetically uh, and give people windows in which they can look into and doors in which they can go through so that we can have a better society. Our commitment should be unapologetically to leave the world better for our children and their children and the generations to follow us. And unless we really make more progress in this, we have broken our commitment to do that. Uh, When I think about my mother's generation who grew up in segregation in the South uh, and and they were told that, you know, education is the key. Uh, So if you, if you get education, 
and that if laws were changed, which is much of what Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and many other women and men, black and white and others who worked for. So those were what I call three steps forward. But sure. now we see a couple of steps backwards if, if, if our, our systemic way of, of operating uh, allows some people to be treated at a, at a more valued level than others. So we really have to break that down. And I think part of that comes from prayer, comes from conversation, comes from prophetic preaching, truth telling, listening to stories and, and really making a commitment to, uh, uh, to justice that is based upon uh, uh, the golden rule. Yes. Uh, well, I think uh, want to be treated. I, I think a part of this is speaking love into fear and that uh, fear and intimidation are, uh, it seems to me, you tell me, uh, it seems to me fear and intimidation are a big part of racism and you know, any oppression that takes place. And I'll tell you a very, very brief antidote that I'm aware of where I think there can be some practical things can happen. I know of a black female pastor, a single woman who moved into a predominantly white church as a clergy. And all of a sudden, some of the neighbors around there started as soon as she moved in, started sporting Confederate flags. And then some people were seen walking in the neighborhood, uh, openly carrying their guns and kind of speaking negatively. Well, I do know yep. that the people in that church and many clergy in the area then surrounded that person with love and support, and it helped. Now, that doesn't mean you don't have to deal with some of the nonsenses out there, but it helped. And I just hope that we could speak, you know, the, the perfect, uh, 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 perfect love cast out all fears, right? So that's what we can do about it. So. Yeah, I'm gonna write that down. I, I though I know that I, it's good to be. It's good to hear. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one, isn't it? Second John. Uh, oh gosh, I can't think of the deal. <laughs> well, I just want to ask you one more time, one more thing, and then uh, then you maybe you can have a word of uh, devotion and some prayers for us. But this, you know, this has been a uh, difficult, trying. It has been a fearful, intimidating time, and in, uh, with the virus and with all kinds of other troubles in the world, economic and so on. And uh, some of our churches are going back to worship now. And, uh, you know, certainly this, I just don't think the uh, work, I think the work is just beginning and just transitioning in, in social um, and uh, racial uh, justice issues. But what do you see now are signs of hope, even in the midst of all these disturbing events, what are the signs of hope that you see? I see people speaking out that I, wouldn't necessarily have anticipated. I see lay people uh, getting uh, uh, getting offended uh, and and then getting motivated uh, to uh, to as you said to uh, accentuate the fact that perfect love casts out all fear. So that excites me, and I don't want to miss this opportunity, Brad. You and I are about the same age, and we graduated from the same seminary. I want to take this opportunity and thank you for creating this platform and ask you as a colleague and a friend, uh, um, are you willing to help help journey with me in this season of two pandemics? Uh, and uh, are you willing to do all you can as an, as an Anglo male with privilege uh, and me as a bishop with privilege uh, to advance the, the cause of what, what Dr. King would call the beloved community? Well, I think uh, the short answer is yes, absolutely. I'm there with Christ and with you in this whole process. And I'll just share with you a couple of anecdotes out of my own life that are indications that I think clergy have to get involved. 
many years ago, I was in a small community and there was a small black, I was pastor of the downtown church, but it was a small black church in our community and a cross was burnt on the lawn of one of the members, the lay leader of the church. And the pastor of that church, a fellow named Charles Harrison and I, who he and I went to high school together, we got to, he led it of course, but we had a civil rights style march singing, we shall overcome. And I was a part of that process. And then Two other churches I was at, uh, we had uh, multiracial events, uh, which ultimately led to a lot of pressure where I had to end up leaving the churches because we brought in multiracial people. I'm just saying we, uh, we pastors, clergy, churches have to be willing to take a risk for the cause that is just. And just causes like this means that we are not going to be comfortable. We're not going to be comfortable. One more quick story, then I'm going to let you finish up with, a, with a, a word of devotion for us. The answer is yes, but it also comes when I encountered a, fun, a young man in the grocery store the other day. I went to get ice cream at the grocery store, and this black gentleman and his white wife, I believe, were there getting ice cream as well. And I just stepped around to get ice cream. And he said to me, excuse me, boss. And for, I don't know why it was, but that really bothered me as I walked away. Because I said, you know, I don't know you. I didn't have this conversation with my internal conversation. I'm not your boss. You know, I'm not your any, this kind of thing. And maybe it's just a flippant term that he uses for everybody, perhaps. Mm-hmm. But I had the feeling he did, wouldn't have used that for a black gentleman. Mm-hmm. I need to feel the proper level of discomfort as a white clergy person. Same age as you. We are contemporaries in many, many ways. We've had, but I have not had the same experience as you have. I've not been arrested for the color of my skin. I've been oppressed a little bit, but it's more feeling uncomfortable than actually feeling that pressure. And I got to get involved to get more involved in the church, churches I'm with will do that. And I would do that personally. And part of that is speaking out in this way. And because uh, I love God more than I love any discomfort that I have. And I see this, basically this uh, ugliness in our world and in the church that has to be spoken to. And I'm proud that I have a couple of, uh, of sons who are involved with this as well. And they're very uncomfortable with AC and uh, they're stepping up as well. But uh, the answer question, my friend is yes, I'm, I'm on board because this is, this is a God thing, isn't it? This is not a bishop. This is not a bishop thing or a conference program or a whatever, you know, a deal. This is a God thing. And that's where I think the spiritual appeal is coming from. I think it's a spiritual thing as much as it is a social thing. I agree with you. Interrelated. So the answer is yes. I was kind of long-winded with that. I apologize for that. And, but please, if you will, just lead us to the next direction. What kind of thoughts do you have to close us with and maybe pray for us as we uh, close our time well, together? First, I want, to thank, I want to thank you, Dr. Brad, for, for your witness. Uh, your answer didn't surprise me at all. It wasn't a trick question. It was an invitation that the Lord has asked me to ask people that I'm in relationship with. Uh, because we everybody's saying, how can we get to the next step? And I said, well, let's you and I first see what we can agree on to do. So thank you for that witness. And those who may listen to this podcast, we need to look in the mirror and ask ourselves, uh, God, what would you have? What is our assignment? You know, that might be a good thing for us to wake up tomorrow. Everyone who's a follower of Jesus Christ. And you look at the world in which we're living in now, particularly with all of the unrest uh, around uh, racial oppression and the, the, this long-sustained pandemic that has not gone away yet, uh, we need to ask ourselves, what is our assignment? And I think one of our assignments is to be uh, prayer warriors uh, and also to be prophetic voices, lay in clergy, uh, to speak truth to uh, power, 
to speak, speak love to hatred, and to be reminded as this coronavirus has reminded, we are all going to die. And the question is what kind of uh, contribution are we going to make before we leave this earth uh, so that it can be a better earth uh, for those generations that are yet to follow. I don't wanna leave a world that is so stained and toxic, full of hatred and uh, racial animus. I think we can leave a much better world than that. I'm asking that God would not only bless us so that we might have strength and sustain witness, but that we might be a blessing and break the back of uh, uh, racial oppression, break the back of uh, uh, discrimination, uh, and leave uh, the sin of racism no corner to hide in. And this is my prayer, Lord God, if you would uh, make us instruments of your peace, uh, make us instruments of your love, make us instruments of your justice, and we will be careful to give you the praise and the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. such an important episode for you to listen to and reaction of Bishop Julius Trimble, no matter how black lives do matter, particularly in building biblical community. Here's what I want you to hear, this one takeaway, especially targeted to people like me who are Anglo pastors and Anglo leaders. What are we willing to do? Are we willing to take up the challenge the bishop gave us to get involved, to take a risk for what is just? And what are the next steps that we can take to create this beloved community by speaking love into fear. What's your next step? Is it a prayer group? Is it a teaching group? It is speaking prophetic messages. What is that to be? I invite you as a fellow Anglo pastor and all of us to be prophetic, to be profound, and to speak truth into this world. John Wesley spoke about justice a lot, writing a book about slavery called Thoughts on Slavery, where he spoke very directly to the matter of racial injustice. And he denounced it as a practice completely foreign and antithetical to Christian thought and practice. It is time for us to step up ourselves and to get involved and get engaged. I want to leave you with this quote from John Wesley, which is pertinent to our conversation here today. What one generation tolerates, the next generation will embrace. Thanks so much for listening to the United Methodist People podcast with Reverend Dr. Brad Miller. You can continue the conversation and commentary about strengthening the connection in the United Methodist Church to accomplish our mission of making disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. Visit the United Methodist People podcast on the web at unitedmethodistpodcast.com and connect at facebook.com slash United Methodist Podcast. And always do all the good you can.